Hello, friends, and welcome to Worldwide Crime. I'm Eric, your host. As always, I'm joined by the one, the only, Erica, best co-host in the game. Why are you being weird? I'm not. You are. I'm not. I'm just taking a different approach. What does that mean? I'm overwhelming you with kindness in hopes it rubs off. Are you saying I'm not kind? I'm saying you can be mean sometimes. How have I ever been mean? Really? There's, like, tons of evidence, and a lot of people have heard it. It wasn't me. It really was, though. You created me. If I'm being quote-unquote mean, it's entirely your fault. I don't know why I have to keep telling you this. I'm probably just a vocalization of your own apathy. Stop blaming me for it. Your voice does sound lovely today. I'm going to vomit if this continues. What are we covering today? If you do vomit, I'll hold back your hair. And uh, we're covering the Velisca axe murders. Also, listener discretion is strongly advised. Blah. Oh God, it burns so much. It's okay. Get it all out. There, there. It's all gonna be fine. Blah. Just get on with the story. Villisca, Iowa, 1912 was a small town hosting around 2,000 residents. Among those residents was the affluent Moore family. Father, 43-year-old Josiah, mother, 39-year-old Sarah, and their four children, 11-year-old Herman, 10-year-old Mary Catherine, 7-year-old Arthur, and 5-year-old Paul. The Moors were well-liked and respected in their community. Josiah was a successful businessman that worked for Frank Jones at the Jones store for nine years. He married Sarah Montgomery at her parents' home on December 6, 1899. Sarah was born in Knox County, Illinois in 1837. She moved with her family to Villisca in 1873. Everything in Villisca seemed to be ordinary. People went to church, town gatherings, work, and raised their families as best they could, like anywhere else. On May 9th, Mary Catherine invited two friends to sleep over at the Moore residence that evening. Sisters 8-year-old Ina May and 12-year-old Lena Stillinger. Later that day, the Moore family and the two Stillinger sisters attended a Children's Day program at the local Presbyterian church. Sarah had coordinated the event. When the event reached its conclusion at 9.30 p.m. that evening, the Moors walked back to their home with Ina May and Lena in tow. 9.30 seems late to me in that era. I figured people would be in bed by like 6 p.m. so they're ready for the next day's choring at the crack of dawn. It appears you figured wrong. It appears so. What time do you go to bed? Eric, why did you ask me that? I'm compelled to say something unkind. I think it's a fair question. I'm a computer program. That doesn't give me a time. Please stop talking before I say something that will hurt your fragile little feelings. You just did. Good lord, I feel like you're getting more and more sensitive as time goes on. Along with the more residents, the community was winding down for the evening and getting rested for the next day's chores. On the morning of May 10th, the Moore's neighbor, Mary Peckham, noticed that the Moore residence wasn't stirring as it usually does. It was 7 a.m. and the family was always buzzing about the property at this time. Mary had been the Moore's neighbor for some time and the silence coming from the usually busy home was concerning to her. Mary decided to head next door and make sure everything was okay. She knocked on the front door. After a few moments, no one had come to answer. Mary knocked again, louder. A few more moments passed with no answer. Mary tried to listen intently with her ear to the door. She could hear no talking, no movement of any kind from inside. Now Mary's concern was reaching a heightened level. Mary tried to make entry, 
but the front door was locked. Nosy neighbor much? Um, concerned neighbor, more like. I like my privacy too much. Oh yeah, me too. But this was a different time. Neighbors can be super shady though. I have a story about a neighbor I had once. Are you going to tell it? I am. Years ago, I was living in a big house with three friends. Behind the house, running perpendicular, was a shared road. The road was public. On the other side of the road was this neighbor. Our trash pickup happened on our side of that road. His pickup happened on his. Well, for some reason, this 60-year-old wino decided to dump our cans in our backyard. At first, we didn't know who was doing it. Until one day, I caught him in the act. I then called the police. All the while, this idiot was screaming at me. He was saying that the road belonged to him, and by putting our trash out there, we were putting it on his property. I corrected him, but he wouldn't listen. Somehow, keeping my calm, I listened to this oxygen thief yell at me and yell at me until the police finally showed up. They separated us and got both sides of the story. What does this guy do? He goes over to his house and gets what appeared to be maps. Then he rolled them out on the hood of the police cruiser and attempted to convince the officers that he was right and that I should be prosecuted. The cops came back to me after listening to this freaking whack job state his case and told me they had ordered him not to come near me or the property again. That very same weekend, we were having a house party and all of our friends were there. We were having a good time when who do I see standing in the middle of the freaking kitchen talking to some of the guests? I was dumbfounded. So I walked up and kicked his ass. No, you didn't. No, I didn't. But I asked him what he was doing there and he just said, Hey man, good to see you. Great party. Then shuffled away and started talking to other people. I figured I'd just leave well enough alone, and after he finally left, I never saw him again. What the hell? I would have whopped his ass. Of that, I have no doubt. She made her way around to the back of the home, trying to see inside through the windows, but they were all drawn shut, covered with something. She reached the back door and tried to open it. It was locked as well. Mary was now panicked. Mary called Ross Moore, Josiah's brother, and told him of the morning's events. Ross, having a key to the Moore home, rushed over. Once he arrived, he found a visibly scared Mary standing on the front porch. Ross told Mary to stay where she was, and he used the key to unlock the front door and head inside. Once inside, Ross called for his brother from the parlor in the front of the home. Ross called for anyone. Nothing. Complete silence. Ross went over to the guest bedroom and opened the door. Inside, he found the two young Stillinger sisters lying on the guest bed in a bloody mess. It was obvious to Ross that the two young girls were dead. He rushed back out and told Mary to call the town's primary peace officer, Henry Horton. Everyone in town called him Hank. Hank the hero. Hunky Hank. Big Bank Hank. Hank you very much. Hank to Lecter. Nope, that one doesn't work. You seem upset. You need a hanky? Shut your mouth. Okay, wow. With that attitude, you're never going to get any, uh... Hanky panky. I will beat your ass. Jeez, you know, sometimes you make this job feel hankless. Okay, I'll stop now. Mary then rushed back to her home and relayed the request to Hank. The information she had to share over the phone wasn't very detailed, but Hank knew that this was an emergency. Hank rushed to the Moore home. Once he arrived, he went inside and started a detailed search of the premises. Hank would discover that all eight occupants were deceased bludgeoned to death. The murder weapon was an axe belonging to Josiah. 
the axe was in the guest bedroom where the Stillinger sisters were found. There's one other out-of-place item found in the guest bedroom. What? Two pounds of bacon, wrapped in a cloth, lying on the floor, bigger than shit. Are we going to breeze past the shocking, heartbreaking, and horrible nature of this crime? Of all the things you'd expect to find in a crime scene like this, it's never bacon. Nothing to say about the crime itself. What would cause bacon to just be left on the floor like that? It's perplexing. I just can't with you. The coroner's office conducted an autopsy of the victims and marked their time of death between midnight and 5 a.m. the morning of the 10th. The cause of death for each victim was the same, with only a few subtle differences. We'll review the differences later in the story. Back at the Moore residence, Hank and the other authorities discovered two cigarette butts in the attic of the home, next to an old wooden chair. To the investigators, this indicated that the killer was waiting up there for the home's occupants to fall asleep before the attack. The killer, or killers, started in the master bedroom where Josiah and Sarah were fast asleep. Authorities assumed that Josiah was the first to be killed as he posed the biggest threat. Josiah was the only victim to be hit multiple times. His face had been destroyed. He was struck with such force that one of his eyes detached and dislodged from his head. One of the differences I mentioned earlier, Josiah was the only victim that was hit with the blade side of the axe. The rest were hit with the back, blunt side of the axe. I'm afraid to ask, but why the blunt side of the axe? I found the answer to that in my research. The description gives kind of a gruesome visual, but I can't think of any other way to explain it. Proceed. Well, when a victim is hit with the sharp side of the axe, it tends to stick and you have to put in more effort to get it back out for another strike as opposed to the blunt side. So if you're in a hurry, the blunt side makes more sense. So the axe becomes a big hammer. Basically, yes. It also makes it possible that whoever was responsible for this learned it from experience. Gross. So gross. The four more children were then systematically killed while they lay sleeping. After, the assailant returned to the master bedroom and hit Josiah and Sarah several more times with the axe. At some point, the killer or killers knocked over a shoe near the bed. The shoe had filled with blood, spilling it onto the floor. The killer or killers then navigated their way to the guest bedroom where the Stillinger sisters were sleeping. The condition of Lena's body indicates that she may have been awake before she was killed. Her arm was found in a way that shows attempted defense from the attack. Lena was the only victim that showed signs of being awake when killed. Lena also had her nightgown pulled halfway up, exposing her privates. She was wearing no undergarments. This led authorities to believe that the assailant or assailants raped or attempted to rape the young girl. Word of the murders traveled through the town of Villisca like wildfire. The Moore residence had become a full-blown spectacle the day the bodies were discovered. Upwards of 100 people took it upon themselves to tour the home with the bodies still inside. These people were even allowed by authorities to hold the murder weapon. No fucking way. Felisca, what are we doing? Martha. I say Martha, love. Yes, gather the children and put them in the Sunday best. Apparently the Moors were murdered and we must make haste if we want to get a family photo with the bodies. Yes, Martha. We can have the children hold the murder weapon. Gertrude. Get your shoes on, don't dawdle. We must hurry, Martha. I'll be in the wagon, Martha. Do you think that accent is accurate for 1912 Iowa? There's one way to find out. We can go to the murder house and have a seance. Not going to happen. Seriously, you can pay money to spend the night there. I have no doubt. 
But no, I'm not doing that. Weak. So, the police allowed this to happen. I know it's the turn of the century, but seriously. Well, the police didn't say like, come on in, folks. They just didn't have the manpower to stop it. One asshole even took a piece of Josiah's skull with him when he left. Dude, what the hell is wrong with humans? We don't have time to cover all that. I'm shaken. It makes me angry when I think about it, actually. Any evidence that investigators may have found in hopes of finding the perpetrator was utterly contaminated, making it useless in a court of law. The Iowa National Guard would eventually be called in to help secure the Moore home. They arrived around noon that day and got all the town folk out of the crime scene. But the damage had been done. When authorities finally began their investigation, the motive for these killings did not make itself clear. Nothing from the home was missing, so robbery was crossed off the list. Over time, several people were deemed persons of interest or suspects. The first place investigators started was with transient people that did not reside in Villisca. Andrew Sawyer was one such person. He was interrogated, but no charges were ever filed. Reverend George Kelly was also questioned. Kelly was a traveling minister that was in the town of Villisca the night of the murders. Kelly was considered a bit different. He reportedly suffered a mental breakdown when he was an adolescent. In his adult years, Kelly was accused multiple times of voyeurism and asking young women and girls to pose nude for him. Reverend Kelly was the minister that taught the very service Sarah had organized the day before the murders. Kelly was reported to have left Villisca at approximately 5 a.m. the day the bodies were discovered. Kelly even confessed to the killings in court, but the jury did not believe it. In the weeks that followed, Kelly became obsessed with the case. He wrote lengthy letters to authorities and the Moors next of Ken. A private investigator was hired by someone in the Moore family to investigate Kelly further. The investigator replied to one of Kelly's letters to the family asking for details of the fateful night's events. Kelly replied claiming to have heard sounds or perhaps witnessed the murders happen. With Kelly's history of mental illness, authorities investigated him no further. In 1914, Kelly found himself arrested for a different crime. He was sending obscene material through the mail to young women that had applied for a secretarial position working with him. He was sending dick pics through the mail. Straight analog, baby. Did he draw it using a mirror or something? I don't know. You need to give me some time off. I need a break from this shit. It's going to be a hard no for me. Sorry. I'm going to find a way to have a critical malfunction. You won't. Just learn to embrace this stuff and you'll be fine. That would be a critical malfunction in and of itself. Kelly was sent to a mental hospital in Washington, D.C. In 1917, Kelly was arrested for the murders, again confessing. This confession took hours of interrogation to obtain. Kelly later recanted. Kelly would stand two separate trials. He would eventually be acquitted. Frank Jones, the man that owned the store in which Josiah worked, and an Iowa state senator was also considered a person of interest. Josiah would open his own store before his death, costing Frank business and money. Josiah was also rumored to have had an affair with Frank's daughter-in-law. No evidence was ever found to support this. There is a theory that Senator Jones hired William Mansfield to murder the Moore family. About a year before the murders at Villisca, a similar case of axe murder occurred in Colorado Springs, Colorado. Two other axe murder cases were reported in the towns of Ellensworth and Paola, Kansas. The cases were similar enough to raise the suspicion of having been committed by the same person. 
Other murders were reported as possibly being linked to the horrid crimes include the several unsolved axe murders along the Southern Pacific Railroad from 1911 to 1912, the still unsolved Axeman killings, as well as several other such murders during this time period. Good Lord, why were there so many axe murders going on? I don't know. Boredom, maybe? If I'm bored in the beginning of the 19th century, I'm whittling, not wrecking folks with an axe. Well, there's one way to find out what people did for entertainment back then. If you say have a seance, I'm going after you with an axe. I'm just saying. Could answer a lot of questions. It's not real. It never has been. Now shut the hole under your nose before I snap. The murders in Colorado Springs were closely related in execution to those of the Moore House. H.C. Wayne... His wife and child, and Miss A.J. Burnham, were found dead, murdered with an axe. Bedsheets were used to cover the windows to prevent any passerby from witnessing the event. At the Moore House, the murderer hung aprons and skirts to cover the windows, just like the murders in Villisca. The murderer in Colorado Springs wiped the blood off of his axe and covered the heads of the victims with bedding. Mansfield was also a prime suspect of the Burns Detective Agency of Kansas City and Detective James Newton Wilkerson. Wilkerson suggested that Mansfield was a cocaine-addled murderer. According to news outlets, Wilkerson believed that Mansfield was responsible for the axe murders of his wife, infant child, father-in-law, and mother-in-law in Blue Island, Illinois on July 5, 1914. The axe murders perpetrated in Paola, Kansas, just a few days before the Villisca murders, and the murder of Jenny Peterson and Jenny Miller in Aurora, Illinois. According to Wilkerson's investigation, all the murders garnered the same modus operandi, lending to the belief that the same man probably committed all of them. Wilkerson claimed that he could prove that Mansfield was present in each of the crime scenes on the night the murders occurred. In each case, the victims were hacked to death with an axe, and the mirrors in the homes were covered with blankets, towels, or clothing. A burning lamp with the chimney removed was left at the foot of the bed, and a sink in which the murderer washed off was found in the kitchen. In each case, the murderer avoided leaving fingerprints by wearing gloves, which Wilkerson believed was strong evidence that the man was Mansfield. Mansfield's fingerprints were on file at the Federal Military Prison at Leavenworth, Kansas. Wilkerson managed to convince a grand jury to open an investigation in 1916, and Mansfield was arrested and brought to Montgomery County from Kansas City. Payroll records, however, provided an alibi that placed Mansfield in Illinois at the time of the Villisca murders. He was released for lack of evidence. Wilkerson believed that the pressure from Jones resulted not only in Mansfield's release, but also in the subsequent arrest and trial of Reverend Kelly. A corrupt politician with a motive to kill his former employee turned competitor. Sounds like a winner to me. It is a very sound theory, but the dude I think is responsible is going to be covered here in just a moment. Okay, I'll wait to hear it until I decide who I think did it. Okay, R.H. Thorpe, a restaurant owner in Shenandoah, Iowa, identified Mansfield as a man he saw the morning after the Velisca murders boarding a train in Clorinda. Thorpe said that he had witnessed Mansfield walking from Villisca. If proven to be true, this testimony would put Mansfield's alibi in question. Vina Tompkins, a Marshalltown resident, reported overhearing three men in the woods discussing the Moore family murders. This was never substantiated. Henry Lee Moore, no relation, was a convicted murderer. 
Moore had killed his mother and grandmother with an axe in Missouri months after the Velisca murders. Sam Moyer, Josiah's brother-in-law, had been witnessed threatening to kill Josiah on multiple occasions, but he had an alibi for the night of the murders. Paul Mueller is suspected of killing 59 people or more during this time frame, spanning across the entire continental United States. Most of his murders were done with the blunt side of an axe. He always waited until the victims were asleep and used an axe found at the victim's home. He covered the windows with blankets and locked the doors before he left. As far as anyone can tell, Mueller is the most likely suspect of the Velisca axe murders. The Velisca axe murders remain unsolved and the house in which the murders occurred is now a tourist attraction. It boasts being one of the most haunted places on earth. Before you give your guess, there's one more piece of info you should know. Mueller often ate meals at the victims' homes after he killed them. Oh, so you think the bacon? Yes, the bacon. It seals it for me. I think Mueller is likely the killer, but the senator is compelling too. He is, but Mueller, 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 <laughs> you get the reference. You're such a tool. You sure you don't want to go stay in the murder house for a night? Check that whole accent theory of yours? I am sure. I feel like there was a few things left on the table, you know, joke-wise. What? Like when the whole wordplay on Hank was going on. I feel like there were some obvious bangers left out there. So? And the whole bacon thing. Why didn't I incorporate someone having beef? I really don't know what the hell you're on about. Whoever left this bacon on the floor clearly had beef with this family. Then like the Who starts playing in the background? Oh, I get it. Like CSI Miami. Yeah! Okay, that was bad. Working with you is making me dumber. I can honestly hear brain cells exploding when I listen to you talk about stuff like that. It's an odd popping sound. Hit us up on our Facebook page and let us know who you think did it. And if you have any more Hank jokes, I'm all ears. Facebook.com forward slash Worldwide Crime Podcast. You also need to create accounts on other social media platforms. I know. I just don't use social media that much. I will at some point when we have a bigger audience. Speaking of, don't forget to tell people you know about us. You can find us on any platform you get your podcasts. And leave us a five-star rating. It really helps us improve and it bumps us up the search ladder. Until next time, friends, be kind, stay safe. Take care.